1: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DiRogatis, a pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kotz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune.
2: Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, The Rock Doctors Are Back. Once again, an ailing music lover has found her way to us, and we're going to put her on the
1: road to recovery. Plus, we'll talk about the new albums from The Shins, John Mellencamp, and The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now
2: for some music news.
3: But I you, yeah. I it, for those to Greg chill.
1: we're listening to a mixtape by an artist known as DJ drama with uh, Lil Wayne on there it was called Dedication 2. poor DJ drama his real name is Tyree. Simmons, you've probably heard about this. A little more than a week ago, 10 days ago, the law enforcement <laughs> officers of Atlanta, Georgia, descended en masse as if they were, a, you know, in a SWAT team on the uh, studio that DJ Drama works out of downtown Atlanta. Seized 81,000 CDs, four vehicles, recording gear, and quote, other assets that are proceeds of a pattern of illegal activity. Mind you, we're not talking drug paraphernalia. It's all about producing CDs that are sold on the street, in some cases through some some reputable uh, retailers. They're they're, uh, prosecuting DJ drama, or intend to, under the uh, RICO laws, the racketeering influence corrupt organization laws, (laughs) which were established to stop the mafia. What is this guy doing? He's making CDs. That's all he's doing. What the heck's going on?
2: The record industry is in a really, really strange area right now, Jim, because it's essentially saying that for years it had turned its back – on these uh, mixed CDs saying that they're in some ways a good thing because they, they've been using them as a promotional tool now they are treating mixtapes it appears after this rate as counterfeit in other words they're putting them on the same plane as the backroom guy who uh gets a copy of jay-z's black album and runs off a thousand copies of it and Mm -hmm. runs out on the street corner and sells them for 10 bucks a piece you know jay-z's black album where it is it's a counterfeit copy he's making all the profit on it and the record industry doesn't like that. they've been shutting those guys down or trying to for decades uh, it could be argued that artists like 50 Cent, Kanye West, Clips, Lupe Fiasco would not be who they are were it not for this mixtape culture. DJs like DJ Drama, DJ Clue, DJ k these people have been making have been the go-to guys for a, a, a kind of a shady. But nonetheless, very lucrative uh, side business for the music industry. In other words, the music industry understands that these guys aren't exactly performing legitimately, quote-unquote, but they are actually helping the major label releases of these artists by promoting the songs that are going to come out on them, promoting the artists that are going to appear on them, and creating a buzz, building a buzz, building a promotional campaign for a major label record. So for years, the major labels have been saying, Essentially, they're fine with this. They're not going to shut these people down. But this raid now indicates that they're changing their strategy. They're wondering, hey, we want a piece of this money as well. And it looks like the mixed CD
1: culture in America is in big, big trouble. Not making a lot of sense to me. Maybe we can get some perspective on it from Jeff Chang, our colleague in Berkeley, California. He's a fellow critic, fellow journalist, author of the definitive hip-hop history Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Jeff, is this making any sense to you?
0: Well, I think you know the reason that there's such a huge uproar in the hip hop community right now is that rather than attacking distributors or retailers, it seems now that the r i a has crossed the line into trying to go after artists. and you know the 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 mixtape thing is a really interesting. Uh, industry, sort of sub-industry in and of itself. Let, let's um, start
1: with that most basic question, Jeff, okay. because uh, y- if you hear the RIAA describe what a mixtape is, it sounds different from hearing what people in the hip-hop world. First of all, there's no tape involved. <laughs> it's right. these, are, these are CDs, homemade CDs that are being sold. What is a mixtape?
0: A mix CD is basically, or a mixtape is, is something that's put together by a select, now kind of an elite group of DJs that would include a lot of exclusive, what they call exclusives, or brand new songs or previews from established
1: artists. Well, and in some cases, uh, let's cite two examples recently. The clips. Was, uh, you know, was a hip-hop duo that, that, that they had a lot of buzz, but then they had label problems. It was years before their recent album came out. Lupe Fiasco was signed to a label uh, quite some time ago. His debut album was three, four years in the making. In both cases, they kept their name in the hip-hop world by releasing songs to DJs who put them on mixtapes, right? Exactly. Okay, but the catch here is that I'm signed to a record label, so That's the record right. label owns that song. That's right. So even if I'm willingly releasing it to the compiler of a mixtape, uh, I don't really have the right to do
0: that. <laughs> well, and let's complicate it further because a lot of times what will happen is you've got your A&R person who is sympathetic to the artist and does want to keep the buzz going because they know that they're going to have to you know, have, play the game and keep their artist's name out there. And so a lot of times you'll get money, promotional money, um, set aside in the artist's budget to pay for mixed tape making. You know, and, and so there's where the, the line gets extremely, extremely blurry. Well,
2: it's it's blurry also, too, Jeff, I think, because we're talking about not just underground, unknown acts who are on this. As you've said, there are some bigger names, and it almost behooves even the biggest name artists, the Jay Z's and the 50 Cent's and the Eminem's and the Kanye West's. I mean, I've got uh, on my shelf, I've got four or five Kanye West. A uh, mix CDs, which, uh, none of which were authorized by his record company. But uh, in in the past, the record labels have looked the other way because they know this is a way to build publicity, way to build buzz, way to promote an artist before his his actual, his real, quote unquote, record comes out. Now it appears with this raid that the record industry is taking a different stance on these uh, mix CDs.
0: That's right, and I, my theory actually has to do with the fact that mix tapes have gone mainstream. In the past two years, and not so coincidentally, to many record exec uh, record label executives, it coincides with uh, you know the toughest years that hip hop and rap has had, probably since the 80s. Um, and so they start looking at this and they start going, wait a minute, we're given you know we're getting these mixtapes out, these artists are going out, they're selling this type of stuff. We don't control that money stream. How do we get back in control of that? How do we take that money out? You know. What you have these days is record companies trying to figure out how they can take more of the artist's output.
2: Aren't they sort of defeating the the whole idea behind it, though? Isn't the whole idea that it can work quickly, it does work between the margins, the fact that there is sort of an air of not quite legitimacy about it, there's an outlaw nature to it. Once they co-opt it, once they say, "Let's, let's bring some of this income into our house... Aren't aren't in effect? They're creating another outlaw culture out there, that's saying, "No, wait a minute. We're not going to play that game. We're going to do something else outside the margins."
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it it appears that what they're going to be doing is again sort of figuring out other ways to choke the goose. Yeah, you know, and they're they're basically trying to figure out ways that they can control all of this stuff. And in the end, you know, the question is, is it going to come back and bite them?
2: We're looking at this too in in terms of, uh, do you have a sense of? Which of the major labels are condoning this raid and which aren't? I mean, do you have a sense that is, is this sort of like a new? Was there some backdoor meeting a few weeks ago where all the labels got together and said, "Wait a minute, let's, yeah, it's uh, let, for let's address this"?
1: Or? People got to understand, Greg, what the RIAA is. It's like you know, you, you know, the mafia movies when the <laughs> the heads of the five families gather around the conference table and they decide what's good for business. You know, for everybody. Right. So so it's the umbrella organization of all of the major labels. I guess what we're wondering, Jeff, is is there you know, it's good for some labels. Some labels have seen this do good business for them, priming the pump for an act. Is there is everybody, all the major labels against this or are there some that are split? You know, I, I
0: imagine that there's been a lot of back and forth and conversations that have been going on uh within the industry about mixtapes for quite a long time, uh um on all of this stuff.
1: Well, and also just because one part of one company approves of something doesn't mean the whole thing doesn't. Classic example, you know, Sony will sell you the uh, the CD or DVD burner to burn illegal copies at the same time that Sony, the uh, product uh, distributor, is trying to get you not not to burn their CDs mm-hmm. and DVDs.
0: Absolutely, and that's the whole you know irony of this monopoly structure is is basically a lot of these folks that are, are making these dis- decisions really don't understand what it is that they're in business to do.
1: Well, thanks, as always. Jeff Chang is a hip-hop historian, author, colleague of ours. Uh, many props up there in Berkeley, Jeff. Thanks so much. For the record, we reached out to the Recording Industry Association of America to uh, ask them to provide an interview. Not only would they not come on the air with us, Greg, they wouldn't even give us a statement specifically about their problem with mixtapes.
3: Well, like said ideals I think are right. And I stand beside to stand and fight. I do believe a dream This is our country.
1: Oh man, if you have watched television at all in the last couple of months, you have no doubt seen a commercial that uses that song on the soundtrack. The song is Our Country by John no longer cougar Mellencamp. You know, it's supposed to work, Greg, that we're unable to talk about the song without talking about the manufacturer (laughs) of the line of cars and trucks. Uh, I refuse to mention them. The car commercial uh, shows uplifting images of American history. Immigrants at the Statue of Liberty. Welcome, America. I'm here, along with some distinctly darker episodes. Vietnam. Vietnam. Watergate, all leading up, according to the uh, reports I read in the advertising press. You know, they wanted a distinctly American voice, and they wanted to show that America has had its ups and downs, but like a trusty vehicle from the company I will not mention, nothing can ultimately stop it. It just keeps <laughs> rolling around and guzzling gas and making us reliant on the uh, oil from the Middle East. But re- regardless, they choose for their spokes song person, John Mellencamp. Yeah,
2: Mellencamp, who has famously uh, spoken out against TV ads or any kind of uh, using his songs in any kind of advertising uh, yeah. for decades, uh, which by- makes this. Uh- Quite
1: a significant turnaround. M- mocked by name. Mm-hmm. Bob Seeger, who previously sold a song to the same company I will not mention. Oh, yes. I've, mocked uh, by name. Made I, fun of the guy. I interviewed Mellencamp
2: in 97, uh, and I was asking him about this. And his quote was, it just steals from your integrity. I feel terrible when I see that happening. And he was mocking Bob Dylan then, because Dylan's oh, yeah. uh, music had just started to surface on uh, television advertising. Now... A few months ago, in explaining this walk-up to his new album with the first single being released as a television commercial as opposed to a radio single, if I can get my songs on television in front of people, that's what I'm going to do. (laughs) At this point,
1: for guys like myself,
2: it's about survival.
1: He went even further in Vanity Fair in a story and said that this uh, company that will not be named has been a better record label to me than Columbia Records. Right. I think, Greg, the heartbreaking thing here is that, you know, look. Mellencamp is not a serious artist like Bob Seger. I mean, he's a meat and potatoes rocker, and he's had moments of greatness and he's had moments of sheer and utter little pink houses kind of kitsch, okay? But he's generally been sincere. You know, and the last album he made, in particular, what was I-, I thought probably the most mature album of his career, was called Trouble No More, came out in 2003. Mm-hmm. Johnny formerly Cougar was upset. He's watching America's freedoms erode in the wake of 9/11. He's watching the war in our Iraq he thinks it's unjust his response was to go back to the 30s and 40s and cover folk and blues songs mm-hmm. a really credible album which didn't sell at all <laughs> right
2: well that's been part of the problem here and you know I think you do Mellencamp a slight disservice in saying that he's not a serious artist I think he, you know the sound that he created in the 80s was very much copied he, he did an interesting thing where he was merging rustic folk instruments, dobros and fiddles and things like that, with that big drum sound, a la Gasoline Alley, the Rod Stewart early 70s kind of records. So, well, I don't his, know if that's a sign of that it was good. But his bands you know. were always really well respected, and he always put on a very, very credible live show. And, uh, I'm just and, saying, and the man ain't Bob Dylan. Nobody is, though. Okay. Uh, but And speaking of Dylan, he was one of those artists that did sell his music to commercials. Mellencamp was one of the few, including Tom Petty, Tom Waits, Neil Young, Bruce Springsteen, who basically stood, took a stand and saying this is, you know, this is the wrong thing to do. You know, we shouldn't be selling our our music to advertising. It cheapens the money. It cheapens the impact of the song that we wrote. Does does that mean the song we wrote is now
1: going to be associated with this product forever instead of what we originally intended it for? Greg, it's impossible. We're talking about this album up in the news because there is this news, Peg, and it it, once again is making everybody wonder if selling out is anything that is even still a valid concept today but uh, let's try to separate all that now having talked about that and and listen to the album as art it's called Freedom's Road just came out I think that this is a track that epitomizes the entire album it is once again a concept album it is once again a shadow of 9-11 middle of the Iraq war album this song the Americans I think uh, kind of is typical From the Midwest. I'm in a, I try to understand all the cultures of this world. And actually, believe it or not, it gets worse from there. He's flying over the country in my airplane. He's driving down the highways. He's bemoaning the ghost towns. He's uh, singing with Joan Baez. Get this. Mellencamp wants you to know the Jim Crow laws were bad
2: yeah and you know what they're still around I mean there's a song there's called a, Jim Crow yeah, there, there. Jim racism Crow never went away yeah racism, racism is still is bad Jim. not good yeah
1: right? now look I caught some crap in some corners for championing Neil Young's living with war some people said look this is too obvious and and indeed let's impeach the president for lying as Neil saying that's an obvious political statement but there was a fire in the music and there was a conviction I mean you know Neil was saying something and a lot of people would turn him off for saying I Mm -hmm. I do not like Bush I believe he lied Mellencamp never says anything that anybody could object I mean look who's going to say Jim Crow is good You know, the one thing that Mellencamp,
2: I mean, I've never held him up to being a great lyricist, but he always had some detail in his lyric that kind of rang true. There was a resonance there that for all his kind of, you know, he was kind of like the bard of the daily grind. He didn't make any pretenses to poetry. But when he said, you know, sucking on a chili dog outside the Tasty Freeze in that dumb song, Jack and Diane, (laughs) he put a picture in your head and you kind of go, yeah, "Yeah, I can kind of relate to these two characters. You know, I, I can see that scene in my mind.
1: But with these songs, I mean he's just writing speeches. Yeah. And they're bad speeches. Well they're bad speeches and, and look, you know, at least Neil Young, call him obvious if you want, but he suggested an action. Let's impeach the president for lying, right? Take action. Uh Mellencamp, you know, it all builds to this song someday. Someday, but I don't know when, someday, but I don't know when things will get better. Well, geez, you know that—that's like a vision of the world that is about as sophisticated as a car commercial. If you buy this, your life will be yeah. better. Which brings us right back to the top. I think, as art, if we rate it on the sound opinion scale of buy it, burn it, trash it, this is a below whatever would come below trash it is. It's so bad. This album, well, Abismally it's too bad.
2: It's too bad because Mellencamp Camp lets down his band. I think I do believe he has a very, very good band. Uh, Mir- Miriam Sturm, his uh, violin player, is is a terrific violin player in a rock and roll context. I've never seen anybody better. Terrific rhythm section, you know, a good scrappy uh, garage rock band with big production values, albeit, but uh, nonetheless a really tight-sounding rock and roll band. They would be the pride of any, any, any bar band in the Midwest, and I say that with uh, all due respect. But Mellencamp's let him down. Uh, a terrible, terribly written album. For a guy who prides himself on being such a great songwriter, this is really one of the worst albums of his career, and it, it's a trash it.
1: Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we've got our rock doctors in the house, and we're going to be talking about the shins a little later on. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. The rock doctors are in the house. Yes, we here at Sound Opinions, we understand how difficult it is to be a
2: music lover these days. There's are a bewildering array of musical choices out there. That's where we come in. We
1: put on the stethoscopes, we prescribe some new music for you. Here's our next patient. All right, we're going to talk to Rachel Gilman. She's 25. She's from Chicago. She is in need of some uh, musical medical advice. (laughs) Is that right, Rachel? Unfortunately, it's true. So what's your story? How come you are uh, out of, I mean, 25? Man, how come you're out of touch with what's going on in music?
4: It's embarrassing. I acknowledge this. I'm a huge movie person. I love TV. I'm an entertainment junkie, but music is my downfall. It's not that I don't like it. I'm just never proactive about it. So I've... I never bought something on iTunes, even though I have an iPod. I think the last CD I bought was in college. I listen to things that people give me. I listen to the radio, but I just, I'm absolutely in a rut.
1: It's so easy now. You know, you just click on, and the, the music comes floating over the net. Well, it's bewildering,
2: though. I mean, there are so many choices that sometimes it can get intimidating, right? I mean, Thank uh, you.
4: I'm the victim.
2: <laughs> how do you weed
1: through all that stuff that's out there? And that's
2: what we're here for, Rachel. And that's Wait, what you, we mean, do. You,
1: you listen to Sound Opinions every week, and you see what we're talking about. If both of us like it, then Lord knows everybody else probably will <laughs> Well, I
4: thought that you guys talked to Roger Ebert, and I thought that was really cool. But I was unsuccessfully able to download it, so that just shows how much I do. <laughs> oh,
1: okay. Well, we can get you some technical help, but this is a, this is a deeper problem. Now, when you were last actively uh, loving and buying, Music that you found yourself. What were your symptoms? What were the things that you loved?
4: I mean, this may sound ridiculous, but it's important for me to understand the words. I <laughs> feel like with so much of the music that's out there, I'll like the sound of it, but I can't actually understand the lyrics if they're not enunciating or whatever it may be.
1: Okay. All right. But you also like uh, a certain amount of Heartland rock, right?
4: Would you classify Tom Patty's Heartland
1: rock? Absolutely. I think he's the epitome of that. He's okay. an all American boy. Oh, yeah. yeah. love Tom Petty sings about all American girls
4: a lot of my music tastes stem from going to high school in a suburb of St. Paul and having friends that were really into certain bands and then I just kind of glommed onto that and got used to it it's, it's like the soundtrack to my high school years has never exactly ended mm-hmm. so I still love Tom Petty I love U2 I
1: alright now when you say when you say you loved U2 there's the early anthemic Irish U2, you know, there's the once Brian Eno came on board, Joshua Tree U2 starting to get arty. Uh, which U2?
4: I I would say earlier. Mm-hmm. I really love Joshua Tree. I love the best S C D they put together that's like 1980 to maybe 1992.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: I do like the one that came out. What is the last one that came out?
2: How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb? Yes. Uh, so what I'm hearing patient Rachel <laughs> is you like melodies, you like lyrics that are understandable, clear, anthemic, maybe. Something that you can sing along with if only in your head. Maybe maybe you like to Sing out loud in the house. I have an, of an
4: abysmal day. singing voice; nobody hears it.
1: That or, never or, stopped any of us. Have you ever heard no, Jim? My music <laughs> <seriously. laughs>
4: teacher told me to play the erasers.
1: I think there's a little <laughs> bit of uh, lighter in the air quality there because you know the anthemic and then the petty. I mean, you know, right? Jerry Maguire. You know, banging on the dashboard to free falling. I mean, that's what you're. You, you want that rousing? Yeah, before
4: Tom Cruise's major public downfall, I really did enjoy that scene. Yeah, I'm free.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm free. I'm free
2: so the song the melody uh, lyric are important you want to hear those kind of things in the music that you want to discover today yeah
1: i think i uh, i have a prescription suggestion uh, dr cod or do you want to go first no, go right ahead,
2: Dr. D. Regattis. I think you uh, should give the first prescription to Rachel.
1: I'm going to go – you know, I tend to go to the more experimental uh, uh, treatments. Dr. Cott uh, tends to, to stick with the tried and true, you know, take a couple of aspirin. I'm going to seize uh, on
2: – You know, I can't uh, let that pass.
1: I mean, uh, what, <laughs> what meds are you on right now, my man? Well, usually. <laughs> okay, all right, uh, all One right. of our last patients uh, said she liked Elephant's Rachel, Gerald you and I, and I, I are going to prescribe
2: something for Jim. I great. You know?
1: yeah, yeah. That's all right. I'm going to c- combine two things you like here. Joshua Tree being one of your favorite U2 albums, that's when Brian Eno came in and started to bring some of that sweeping kind of electronic ambience to the background of what they'd been doing. The Heartland Rock, you know, Tom Petty's great, and he put out a great album last year. I'd say go out and buy uh, him, but um, I, I want to combine... Uh, An act that brings together that heartland rock and that serious, you know, post-Bob Dylan flair for, for lyrics with the experimentalism of Brian Eno-era U2. And I think uh, if you haven't heard uh, Wilco, or if you've only heard them in passing, you need, to really, all right, you need to really immerse yourself in a Wilco album. And we might as well go with the last one. They're gearing up to put out a new record this year, see so maybe if this catches on, you can continue the treatment with their new album. But A Ghost is Born came out uh, about a year and a half ago. It was their fifth studio album, or their seventh, if you count the two records uh, that were Woody Guthrie tributes. But uh, this is probably their most experimental albums, but still at the core, Jeff Tweedy is heartland rocker i mean i think he falls in a line that includes bob dylan and tom petty and neil young you know he writes about the american condition and and all of his songs can essentially always be stripped down to an acoustic guitar and the words there's a great melody there there's always great words there and then with the current version of wilco that he has he brings a lot of experimental guitar stuff some keyboard textures electronic uh backgrounds, the incredible drumming of Glenn Cochi, who was a guest on, on our show a couple of months ago, um, it might throw you at first, but you you committed to immerse yourself in the treatment and listen to all these records a couple of times, at least give them a shot, and I think you'll hear the songs, but you'll also hear really a good representation of what kind of the cutting avant-garde edge of popular music is.
4: I appreciate that.
1: All right, so Wilco, A Ghost is Born, what, what are you going to recommend there, Dr. Cott? Well, Rachel, you mentioned the U2 uh,
2: fandom. Now, did you see any shows on the last U2 uh, arena tour? Yes,
4: I saw the one in Chicago about a year ago, October.
2: Okay. So there's a very good chance, and I believe at those shows, right before they came on stage, they played a big anthemic song by another band. I don't know if you remember that, uh, if you were aroused by it, but I, I was astounded by the reaction of the audience I don't to, that, uh, to that particular song. Everybody got out of their seats. Obviously they knew the show was starting, but I thought the the audience was responding to that song as well as to the entrance of you too in a lot of ways, because the song definitely filled up the arena in a way that was kind of revelatory for me. That song was a song called Wake Up by a band called Arcade Fire. And it's a song on their last on their first record called Funeral. Connected the dots for me, the 21st century version of of what U2 was doing in the mid 80s is what Arcade Fire is, is doing, a- and they're not a band at the level of U2 yet in terms of playing to audience of that size. No, and they're not but trying to feed Africa. I think they definitely Africa, have the, you <laughs> know,
1: and they're not lunging with Desmond Tutu. Or no, that stuff and, and
2: that's to their credit. They're just about the music. But uh, I think if any band, if any new band, has the potential. To be a band of the stature of U2 in terms of being able to do those kind of big arena anthems, it's Arcade Fire. And, you know, when you listen to the funeral record, go to that song, Wake Up, and see if you remember, because I, I, to, my, to my mind, on that fall U2 tour, that was a big moment, and those shows is actually some of the best music you heard all night, you know, and it wasn't by U2, it was by the Arcade Fire.
4: That's interesting that they played that to start off the show.
2: They're big fans, and uh, Bowie's big fans, so they're definitely getting some notice uh, from the big boys, and... Uh, I think it's only a matter of time before this band's playing arenas, too. All right. So, so they
1: can um,
4: just get a song on a WB soundtrack, they set.
1: Exactly. you got it. <laughs> well, but they're indie rock. I don't know if they want to go that way, nor do I think Wilco will uh, anytime soon. But uh, Wilco and the Arcade Fire, and, you know, you you take your medicine, Rachel, and we'll check back within a week and see if it's uh, cured your ills.
4: Well, I appreciate the prescription. Thank you.
1: All right. You bet. Thanks, Rachel.
4: Bye.
2: All right. It's time to check back in with our patient. We've issued a couple of prescriptions to Rachel to see if she could cure herself of her musical ills. Uh, Rachel, we want to know how
1: the prescriptions work for you.
4: I think the prescription was fairly good. I'm feeling a little bit better, although I wouldn't say I'm 100% <laughs> cured.
1: <laughs> the musical malaise has not lifted entirely, but some encouragement? Symptoms yeah, are lessening?
4: I'm, I'm on my way.
1: Okay. Why don't we take Greg's recommendation first? Greg, what did you uh, prescribe? I recommended the Arcade Fire
2: Funeral and uh, kind of leading away from your U2 fixation, hoping to move you up into the 21st century (laughs) with a record (laughs) actually made in the last few years. Now, how did that work for you, Rachel?
4: I thought it was a very solid recommendation, and I have been listening to it since on my iPod. The thing that was really interesting to me is two of the songs I'd already had on my iPod, except they were from a mix that somebody gave me, and they weren't labeled by artist. So I was like, oh, wait, I already like these. This is good. Oh, okay. And so I listened to a few other ones, and as with me and all music, it takes a couple listens to be like, oh, yeah, this is is good stuff.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
4: But the um, Rebellion Song and Crown of Love were the two favorites.
1: So Dr. Cott was not off in his diagnosis?
4: No, he was pretty dead on.
1: Good. And you hear at the end. I feel like you two
4: better, but that's not to say I won't grow with this band. Right. Okay. <laughs> he's mono. He has something.
1: Oh, that might not be musical, though. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> the appeal is, is extra musical. He's,
4: yeah, he's a humanitarian. He's sexy. He has a lot going for him.
1: You said the
2: Arcade Fire worked for you. What was it that worked about it for you, and what didn't you like about it?
4: I feel like my interest in it was kind of inconsistent. There were some songs that grabbed me that I felt I really enjoyed listening to, and I liked the sound of it, and I wanted to hear it again and again. And some of them just sounded some terrible, maybe, but more like noise. And I just didn't respond to the music as much.
2: So there were some tracks on there that were a little more experimental. You would like the more straightforward, anthemic stuff.
4: I think I do. Uh-huh. I think I'm kind of traditional that way.
2: I think live, it's it's almost like a band that you have to see live to sort of experience what the album is about, because I, I don't think I appreciated the album until I saw this band a couple of times live, and they just blow people away, because they do have that big stadium-ready sound, and when you see it kind of in a, in a theater, it really works, and I saw them in a couple of big festivals... And they just carry the crowd away with some of these uh, these bigger songs on that record.
4: And then you became a bigger fan yes. after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
2: So now you have to put that on your concert calendar. This band is going to be coming back this year, uh, 2007, because they got a new album coming out in a few weeks. And uh, if you get a chance to see them
1: live, I think that's when it's really going to kick in for you. Okay. All right. And I tried to steer you toward Wilco, and it was a little bit more of a uh, radical treatment. But, uh, you know, I mean, let's face it, in that mid-era there where, where Joshua Tree's an album you love by You 2 they started to experiment and do a lot of ambient things with, with Brian Eno producing them. You also like the Midwestern sound of Tom Petty, the real roots rock. And I tried to take a, you know, a real Midwestern band, <laughs> Wilco, we'll that made an art rock Brian Eno kind of record, uh, Ghost is Born. Did I have any success there?
4: Again, I thought you were also fairly successful. I did like it. The Theologian song was the one I liked the best.
1: Yeah, Theologians.
4: Theologians, sorry. Theologians,
3: all oh, that don't know nothing about my soul. Oh, they don't know. They fill my heart with little things. My life will change.
4: Again, I discovered that I had a few of these on my iPod from way back and wasn't able to place them. And then in hearing them again, I'm like, oh, I do so you enjoy he- it. You can understand all the lyrics. It's very easy listening. They remind me um, – I feel like they're kind of clever in the way that Fish is clever. And if you're listening, you kind of pick up on some of their humor.
1: Wow. C- clever in the way that Fish, Fish the jam band is clever. Yes,
4: yeah. And I could be making a total leap here, but – just in listening to some of the lyrics, I thought they were amusing and interesting plays on words, in the same way that I sometimes thought Fish did that.
2: Well, hmm. theologians definitely has play on words, and Fish, you're right. I mean, Fish uh, was uh, probably the funniest, without a doubt, most tongue in cheek of all the jam bands. They did not take themselves
1: too seriously, so. There's something well, to I, mean, I, can, I can see, connection. see the connection. <laughs> you Jim, can Jim is sort of I, looking I, askance I'm, here, but I, I can understand what you're saying. I, I'm actually stumped. I, you know, some some medication, when you take it, causes dizziness, and, and you shouldn't drive. There are side drive, effects, but, yeah. Know. <laughs> All right, let, let me ask you about Wilco. Now, uh, you, you're holding back, Rachel, because I'm guaranteed there's one song on this album that you hated. You
4: know what? I can't say that there's something I hated. I just... I'm more the person that will find the thing I really like, and it'll be like one or two tracks, and I will listen to them excessively.
1: E- even the last track, the 25 minute and noise second jam? second to last track, <laughs> I have Is it to the, say the penultimate? I, track? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the name of that song?
4: The 15 minute one is Less Than You Think.
1: Yeah, that song, Less Than You Think, The Noise Jam, and then they give you this other song at the end of it, The Late Greats, this is a test to see if you made it through the noise jam.
4: And do you think, in I mean, I'm not the expert by any means, but it's a little indulgent to have a 15-minute track.
1: Yeah, that was a, a test to the fans. That was a little bit of the band thumbing their nose, being artistes, <laughs> and saying, you know, let's see if you can take this. And then they give you the reward at the end. It's like you go to the doctors, they take your blood and all that stuff, and then they give you a lollipop.
4: Okay, so I'm in it for the lollipop. The greatest lost track of
3: all time the Late turn time You can't hear it on the radio
1: go from here you know the road to good health rachel it it rests on you (laughs) we can only do so much i mean you know now you got two new albums it's not going to become like it's not going to add these to your collection of four right i mean you're going to keep trying to dig a little
4: i think i should and I was actually wondering if you have any more recommendations
1: that I <laughs> Oh, that's good. All right. Yeah, all right. That's what we want. So listen to the rest of the show. Go out and buy that Shins record. I would also tell you. Well, to... I like
4: the Shins because oh, the, all of right. what they did in, um, what is that movie, Garden State.
1: There you there go. You. When right. it,
4: The song will change your life. All right. Well, you
1: listen to the rest of this show, and you'll get a sample of the Shins and our, uh, our review of it. Yes, yeah, so Rachel, now we're going to change your life, okay? So. I
4: really appreciate that. <laughs> I want to be as healthy as possible.
1: Thank you for being such an eager patient, Rachel.
4: Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate it.
2: you are listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Next up, we've got reviews of new albums by The Shins and The Good, The Bad, and The Queen.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That's a song called Australia from the third album by The Shins, Wincing the Night Away. Power pop group from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I I call them power pop. They've never been very powerful in the past. (laughs) The third album, Wincing the Night Away, is a bit of a departure. Who are The Shins? Well, you might have just seen them on Saturday Night Live. You might know them from a car commercial or most likely you know them from the film Garden State. What are you listening to?
0: The
3: Shins. You know them? No. You gotta hear this one song. It'll change your life, I swear. Mm-hmm. Gold teeth and the curse for this town are all in my mouth.
1: This musical, Change Your Life, Natalie Portman was trying to convince her boyfriend, uh, Zach Braff, uh, the guy who directed that film. It did a tremendous amount to launch The Shins' career. And uh, now they are... Recording album number three Taking a little more time in the studio than ever before Adding another member Eric Johnson used to be in the Fruit Bats He's a great multi-instrumentalist Pinch hitter And going for a sort of uh, sustained mood That wasn't necessarily there before I mean the shins always had a stylized sound But uh, this time I think quite consciously uh, Greg we're making a studio record We're going to hear something from this And then we'll, uh, we'll jump in with our opinions Phantom Limb is a single. James Mercer, the uh, guy who fronts the band, the singer, the songwriter, the kind of auteur of the shins, uh, he has said that this song, quote, is a hypothetical fictional account of a young lesbian couple in high school dealing with the uh, rotten small town they live in. (laughs) I've listened to this song many times, and uh, I'm very fond of it. I don't hear that. (laughs) I do hear typically ornate lyrics from Mercer, who, uh, who fancies himself quite the poet foals in winter coats, white girls of the North file past 151 these are the fabled lambs of Sunday hams. Uh, this is the sort of thing you get from Mercer who who clearly comes from a tradition, I, I think that's more British than American, of very literary, witty lyrics. Uh, the British press love him. In fact, uh, my favorite British review of this new album compares him to the Woody Allen of indie literate, self-deprecating and witty. I don't know about all that we'll give our opinions shortly, but this is Phantom Limb by The Shins from album number Number three, wincing the night away on Sound Opinions.
3: Forzing into the coast, white girls in the north. Fire the past one, fire one. They are the fables.
2: Phantom Limb from the Shins, and uh, I do swoon when I hear those wordless vocal harmonies in that song every time. It It gets me every time. Right
1: about 220, exactly Uh, the right point in a pop song where you kick it up to the higher level. That's killer when they get to that.
2: That's a wonderful song, and uh, one of the best tracks from uh, the new album by the Shins, Wincing the Night Away. Third album, and as Jim said, uh, this group has sort of been building to this moment. All eyes on them, Uh, and the first two albums were sort of ignored until that uh, Garden State movie came out. And uh, now they are the indie rock buzz band of the moment. How are they doing in that moment? Well, the budget has increased. This is a much lusher record. Joe Ciccarelli, a veteran producer, has been brought in to help produce the record. He's been worked with people like Beck and U2. This guy knows big budget productions. And you can hear it. I mean, there's definitely a, a sense of plushness about this album that did not occur on the first two records but they haven't become more obvious in fact this is the strangest shins album yet oh yeah Uh, this jim had mentioned that james mercer is not the most direct lyricist in the world but uh, the arrangements have become more convoluted more complex more texture less bottom heavy less about you know directing this this pop sound uh straight into your head and drilling it in uh, with repetition uh, This is a record that demands to be listened to over time uh, Many listens absorbing the world That they throw you into And they are sort of throwing you into the deep end I think the band sort of feels like it's in the deep end Of the pool or the ocean right now With all this water imagery in the songs You know, It's girl a soggy Sa- record Yeah, Yes, a lot of sea legs And black wave and girl sailor There's a sense of someone The characters in these songs venturing into the unknown And the record sort of sounds like that Very mysterious, very textured and it's about those plush beautiful melodies that sort of creep up at you rather than grab you by the throat. I do love this record quite a bit, but it's a subtle record. It's not the record you would expect from a band that suddenly has the world's attention upon it. You would expect them to be a little bit more direct and let's let's craft that radio pop hit. Instead, they have made their most artful and textured and strange yeah.
1: record. Well, that that's what I like about it, Greg. I had a problem with the Shins. You and I had one of our uh, most memorable fights uh, somewhere around number seven or eight hundred on the list about <laughs> about the Shins. I think about shoots too narrow, the last album, which I love, <laughs> top ten for me in uh, yeah, two thousand and three. I didn't like the Shins. I mean, I I like power pop, and I think the best power pop bands, you know, groups like the DBs or Big Star, where it all came from, took the original British invasion sounds of, of the Beatles and the Birds and brought it uh, somewhere new and there was always this sort of exuberance. The shins were getting by on this sort of wimpy twee end of things. They were a little too delicate, a little too <laughs> too much finesse and filigree and not a come on, guys, jump up and down and and, and celebrate. They're not doing that here necessarily. It's still the same shins, but what they've brought in, and I know, I get penalized. You know James Brown used to find people in the band if they dropped a note. (laughs) I get penalized by the Sound Opinions producers every time I mention the name Brian Eno. But there is – Brian Eno continues to be a huge influence on much of what we hear in popular music today. Uh, I was talking about what he did with U2 earlier in the Rock Doctor segment, you know, for the Joshua Tree. Here I think that quite consciously the Shins are referencing another soggy album, Eno's first solo album, Here Come the Warm Jets, this sort of record that has this incredible lush production. Everything is upside down, inside out. Hooks come from unexpected directions. little vibraphone thing here or some sleigh bells there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that interesting. It, finally the shins have added the extra ingredient that make them live up to some semblance of the hype in my book.
2: Unexpected moments in this record. Just listen to, there's a, a moment in the song Red Rabbits where you think there should be a guitar solo. This is kind of a guitar based band. Instead there's this amazing sound. I think it's created by strings and maybe a pedal steel guitar. It's just kind of like about a a 10-second swoon. Yeah. And it's one of those moments where you, the hair stand up on your neck and you go, I just want to hear that sound over and over again. And they just sort of insert it three minutes into this really elegantly crafted pop song. Who decides who paddles over the falls? Yeah, who
3: makes the call? Who makes the call?
1: These guys know what to do with a melody, and they know how to make it sound fresh and new. I gotta say, on our patented sound opinions rating scale, buy it, burn it, trash it. This is a buy it record. It sucks me in more and more. It's a double buy it from Jim and I.
2: Fan of the British pop band Blur or the Gorillas, you might recognize that voice. That is Damon Albarn, the uh, singer and songwriter in both of those bands. This is Albarn's latest project. He's teaming up with uh, some other big names, uh, including Clash former Clash bassist Paul Simonon, former Verve guitarist Simon Tong, the brilliant Nigerian drummer Tony Allen, who used to play with Fela. Handling the production, you know, another superstar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Danger Mouse, DJ Danger Mouse, Brian Burton, a.k.a. So you have these five named talents pooling their resources on a record called The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. Apparently that's the name of the group as well. No uh, indication whether or not this group is going to tour. No indication whether they're going to be follow-up albums. But for now, we have this one-off supergroup album. Here's another track from it. It's called Kingdom of Doom on Sound Opinions.
1: Kingdom of Doom from the self-titled album by The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. A rather silly name, but it comes from a lyric in one of the songs. Damon Albarn, Greg, I think is uh, one of the most creative forces in in rock today. There was that silly, much-hyped war between Oasis and Blur at the height <laughs> of the Brit pop craze that followed the alternative explosion in America. For my money, Albarn was always leagues above. I mean here's a guy who grew up – his dad was a road manager for some of the psychedelic progressive rock bands in England. He grew up backstage at Soft Machine shows sitting there finger painting. <laughs> uh, Albarn was born to British rock royalty, British art rock invention. And I think that since the demise of Blur, although they may be reuniting, a lot of rumors in the English press, he's consistently followed his muse in in different directions. And here putting together this supergroup, where interestingly enough, with the exception of Simon Tong, who, you know, the the Verve uh, kind of musical settings kind of, I can see where that comes from. But everybody else is sort of Doing something a little unexpected. The great drummer that you mentioned, Tony Allen, he's not doing the polyrhythmic African rhythms that that he did with Fela Kuti. Paul Simonon is not doing punk rock. But let's not forget the Clash also had a lot of experience with dub reggae, and that's kind of so everybody's kind of doing something a little different. And Albarn is not doing the exuberant Brit pop that a lot of people still associate with him. Certainly with Gorillaz he did different things. Here it's very low key, very understated. It's some moody records, a dark record. Silly name would lead you to think that maybe this was going to be kind of a silly upbeat band, but it's not. Instead, it's this kind of sustained mood piece that that sucked me in, and and really, uh, I think there's a lot there. It, it's not a record you. Get on the first listen, like the Shins. You got to keep digging, and then when you do, there's some real surprises. Something like that—that that '80s Life song, where he's paying homage to '50s duop. <laughs> And I, I, I'm i really into this record,
2: I've got to tell you. Well, unlike the Shins record, which I think rewards uh, intensive listening because the melodies finally sweep right over you and, and, gr- and grab you, uh, there's nothing to grab onto here, Jim. This is, uh, I, I think, a, a waste of a, a lot of talent. I, no. I think it's primarily a Damon Albarn and DJ Danger Mouse record. They didn't need those other guys. I'm not even sure that Tony Allen is even on this record until the last two or three tracks where you can actually hear one of the great drummers in in the last 40 years actually display some of his talent Paul Simonon I mean they might as well have used a click track from a uh, an old clash reissue I mean I cannot believe that the man who played bass on all those tracks the man who's seen no, on the cover
1: of London calling smashing his bass into a stage he, is even on this record you don 't hear the bass that we heard during the freakier trippier dub moments of sandinista of sandinista here? exactly and this is I hear that th-
2: and one album of that I mean is just is way too much I mean the, the thing about sandinista <laughs> <laughs> that it worked is that it was interspersed with some tempo stuff there was some punk in there there was some different grooves throughout that album that made it a sprawling mess but a beautiful mess in fact my favorite Clash record but this record is a essentially a one note mood piece Damon Albarn just sounds tired. He sounds like he needs a a bowl of soup and and somebody to tuck him in for a nap. I mean, come on, wake up, man. If you're so talented, give me something. I know he's sad about the war. We keep hearing it over and over again. The war's bumming me out, man. Okay, great. War sucks. We all know that. Tell me something I don't know. And more importantly, give
1: me some music that I haven't heard before. I think it sustains a mood. It, this is a mood album for, you know, three in the morning. Kingdom of Doom is an appropriate title. There's a lot of talk of apocalypse and things on the edge. There's also this whole other strain, which apparently you missed because you didn't listen that closely, Mr. Cott. Uh, Simon and, and Alburn live in the Portobello Road area of London. There are a lot of references to the multicultural backdrop there. It's increasingly less so. The world is gentrifying. You even London, but the kind of all these cultures coming together and Muslims coming together with Christians, there's a lot of stuff like that. I, I think this is a buy it record. I, you know, yes, it's one note, but it's one brilliant <laughs> oh, note that carries oh. you through this hour. Oh my of music. God. You know, it's a great album. If ever I need a snooze, I might download oh. some of these tracks, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a trash it record. Oh, man. Oh, I, you're, you're nuts. You're nuts. I, I love this record. I don't, you know, what, what are you, anti English all of a sudden <laughs> or what? Anti Almar? I'm anti boring. What do we got next week?
2: Next week, we've got one of the finest hip-hop artists in the country, Lupe Fiasco, nominated for three Grammy Awards off his fine 2006 debut album, Lupe Fiasco's Food and Liquor. It's going to be good
1: stuff. As always, we got some thank yous to say. Greg, Sound Opinions is produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. Get some legal assistance from Dino Armiros, Jim Russell, and the folks at American Public Media. Put our name out there in the world. And Tori Southside Malatia is a man who needs no rock doctoring. (laughs) He's doing just fine. And no Brian Eno reference in the thank yous. Thank you so much, Jim.